uh, that God might have for things like suffering and persecution, affliction, trials, and, well, pretty much anything that uh, might fall under the category of causing us physical or emotional uh, distress. Uh, and, and there's just a handful of things. And last week we looked at some of the possible biblical reasons that God might uh, allow these things, but, uh, but there are a lot of reasons, and there are a lot of reasons aside from the ones that I gave. I think those were just the five primary, but just to give us a, a quick review of the reasons that God would allow his people, his children, to undergo uh, any type of suffering or trial, whether that's physical or non-physical. Number one, affliction demonstrates the condition of our faith, and we saw uh, Abraham, how God tested Abraham. Not that God didn't know where Abraham's faith stood or how strong it was, but maybe Abraham wasn't so sure, but he was after he was told to kill his own son. That's when he really learned the depths of his obedience. Number two, affliction purifies our lives. We call it the refiner's fire because when you're going through a trial, all of a sudden all the junk in our lives starts coming up and the refiner can just skim it right off the top. Number three, to preserve or increase our humility. Uh, We'll remember that Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh and how that was there. Uh, This person who was basically a pain in the neck for him uh, was just there to keep him humble, to prevent him from exalting himself, to to keep him grounded uh, rather than becoming prideful or self-exalting. Number four, trials teach us to long for glory. It teaches us to long for heaven because not only can we not wait to get through this trial and just be done with trials altogether, but in those moments, what do we have to lean on? We don't have our idols. Uh, They don't do us any good. Only the Lord offers us any comfort at all, and so trials teach us to long for glory. Number five, uh, briefly, affliction teaches us to feel empathy for others who are suffering. And uh, it was either Monday or Tuesday this week. I, I I was brought to tears. Uh, when one of my listeners, somebody who listens to my podcasts and sometimes listens to our sermons online, she said uh, she's been suffering for years. She got in a car accident in the 80s, and she struggles with constant pain. And she said, you know, I think the reason God let you go through this is so that you could minister to somebody like me because now you know how I feel. And it was like, wow, what a a privilege that God would, would choose me to minister to somebody like her in, in that way. And I couldn't have done it before in the same way, with the same depth. So, uh, so yeah, those are, those are five reasons that God uh, might allow us to, uh, to, to suffer or undergo trials. But again, this list is by no means exhaustive. Uh, in fact, I would say, you know, there are some things that we may never understand in this life about, you know, why God would let us go through afflictions and trials. And, you know, we ended last week by noting that it's great to have, the, the, you know, a list like this where we can say, oh, you know, what could God be up to? Okay, well, you know, it might be number one and number four, you know, something like that. But applying this knowledge is a totally different ball game, totally different story. And so that's what we're going to be starting to do today. And one of the thoughts that I want to make sure that we hold on to as we continue uh, in this study is that God never promised us that following Jesus was going to be a walk in the park, that, that following Jesus and being molded into his image was going to be easy. He never promised that it was going to be easy. But we have to remember that he is, number one, he's, he's always stronger 
than our circumstances. And, not, and so therefore, whatever circumstances we, we find ourselves in, whether they're good, whether they're bad, we can be positively sure that God, who is sovereign over his creation and all-powerful and thus capable of controlling the things that are going on within his creation, that God is either allowing us or causing us uh, to enter into uncomfortable circumstances, whether that be persecution or depression or you know other afflictions. Uh, so either he allows it or he causes it. Uh, but we must also see this reality in light of Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says this, and we know that God causes all things, all things, persecutions, trials, afflictions, whatever they might be. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. See, the truth is, we won't always understand what God is up to. I guarantee you, you know, if you're a Christian for long enough, there will be times where you're like, I have no idea. It's not any of these five things, I don't think. I have no idea what God's up to. We won't always know what God's up to. The five reasons that we covered may include what God's doing, or maybe he's got something else in mind. But whatever the case, we can be sure that God is constantly active in our lives, that he's like the, the, the potter molding the clay, uh, and, and that he's using the circumstances of our lives to mold us and break us and shape us to become more and more like Jesus. We trust that he's sovereign, he's in control, we trust that he's good, and so thus, when we, when we know that he's in control, we know that he's up to something good. Whether we understand exactly what he's up to or not, we know that he is working for the greatest good in our lives. And the, by the way, the fact that Jesus suffered should eliminate uh, any idea completely in our minds that we as Christians should be immune from suffering. Because if Jesus can suffer and we want to become like Jesus, you would think we'd have to suffer too. He promised that we would have trouble in this world. And Paul said that anybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus would be persecuted. Man, that, that's one that, we, that needs to stick with us because we try to avoid persecution often at the cost of not living a godly life. Sometimes that's what it comes down to. We, we, we decide to be quiet instead of speak out when the Lord is prompting us to speak out. Well, it didn't take long after, uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven in the first chapter of Acts uh, to sit at the, at the right hand of the Father for the persecution of the early church to begin. Now, as far as historical turning points among God's people, I mean, there are some, some really big ones. There's, you know, uh, Moses getting the, the Ten Commandments. That's, that's a big turning point. Uh, Abraham, uh, you know, making this covenant with God, another big turning point. Uh, Jesus coming and establishing the new covenant, big turning point. Uh, but there are few people in Scripture who were more significant and yet less, uh, and, and yet more overlooked or less understood than Stephen. He's one of those types of people about whom we, we actually know very, very little. I mean, we, we basically get a glimpse of his life in one day, maybe for just even a, a few hours. Uh, so we don't know a whole lot about him, but one thing that we know with all certainty is that he was unswervingly, uncompromisingly sold out and committed to serving Jesus. And if we take Scripture seriously, we know that taking, uh, that taking this, this mindset where we are not compromising in our faith is a surefire recipe for going through 
some difficult times, some affliction. Now, we know that uh, Stephen most likely became a Christian between Acts chapter 2 and chapter 6. It's possible that he's one of those people who's in the background during Jesus' ministry, who you know, never gets mentioned by name in the Gospels, although Luke seems so fond of him in, uh, in the book of Acts that you would think Luke would have included uh, Stephen's name in the book of Luke if Stephen was around. So he probably became a Christian sometime between Acts chapter 2 and chapter 6, where we see that out of, out of thousands of Christians here, by the time we get to chapter 6, he's among seven uh, who get chosen as deacons to assist in the ministry of serving tables, serving food. Now, we typically don't think of something like that as a ministry, do we? I mean, it's real easy to get caught up in, in, in segregating our lives where uh, our, our ministry is what happens on Sunday mornings or our, our ministry is what happens on, uh, on Tuesday nights, you know, at small group or whatever, which, by the way, we're going to be introducing. Uh, in case you missed the slide for the announcements, we are going to be having small groups. But we typically tend to segregate our lives so that our job is our job and our ministry is our ministry. And, and there, there's really no overlap. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that no matter what type of work you're doing, you're in ministry wherever you go. You're, you're supposed to be serving the Lord everywhere and anywhere you go. And so we read this about Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 10. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, what's Stephen doing here? Well, he, he's, he's not serving at, the, at the, uh, the tables. He's not serving food. He's gone to the synagogue to witness about Jesus. And his, his message is accompanied by, by these supernatural miracles. He's doing signs and wonders among the people. And in fact, Stephen happens to be the first non-apostle. He, he was a deacon, but he was not an apostle. He's the first non-apostle uh, who's described as having this ability to do signs and wonders. Uh, I might say something about uh, his, the strength of his faith. Uh, and while he's at the synagogue telling people about Jesus... T telling Jews, that, that's who would have been going to the synagogue. He's telling his, uh, his fellow Jews about Jesus. Uh, he encounters some opposition, apparently some educated opposition, uh, and, and they're getting mad at him, and they, they start arguing with him. I mean, obviously, uh, he didn't have Joel Osteen's uh, smile or, or his charm, because that's all you have to do to disarm somebody, right? Just, you know, just smile at him. And it's, no, so, so these people are arguing with him. And they, they can't win. They can't, even though these people seem to be educated, they can't win because of his, uh, his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, if you've got your Bibles open um, and you're, you're in Acts chapter 6, uh, take a look at Acts uh, chapter 6, verses 3 through 8. Uh, we see one word that gets repeated several times in this brief passage, and that is full of or filled. Stephen is a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with wisdom. He was filled with faith, filled with grace, filled with power. In fact, uh, if you look at verses 5 and 8, you'll notice that there's actually kind of a parallel. It's a very subtle parallel, but there is a parallel between verses 5 and 8 that I don't want you to miss. In verse 5, he's described as being filled with faith and the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he's described as being filled with grace and power. 
Uh, th those are two pairs that kind of are, are parallel to each other. And so there's this subtle implication under all this that when we're filled with faith, we'll be filled with grace. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll be filled with his power. Now, it's no wonder that Stephen was chosen to be one of the first deacons. If this is how you could describe somebody, man, this guy sounds like he should be the Pope or something, you know? Uh, not that I support the Pope, I'm just saying. Uh, he should be, you know, primary. He's, he's strong in his faith. Uh, so no wonder he gets chosen to be one of the first deacons uh, out of seven people uh, out, of, out of several thousand. I mean, how could anybody be upset with a person like this, Right? Well, you know, because he was convincing and, and he refused to compromise when it came to Jesus, you know, given, given what we know about him, you know, he, he was a godly man who was committed to living a godly life. But if anybody was, was Christ-like at this point, or even close, even in, in the same ballpark, it, it seems like, you know, if you were to put a list of, of people together, Stephen would have to be toward the top of that list. And just like Jesus faced adversity, so too Stephen was about to face some, some real trials, some, some real steep, steep adversity. So we continue in verses 11 to 14. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, the Sanhedrin. They, brought, uh, they, put, for, uh, they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now as surely as, as Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was dragged before the council, there's a parallel here between what Jesus went through and what Stephen is going through. And the first, uh, first parallel is he gets dragged before the council uh, and, and just as the, uh, the council brought false witnesses against Jesus, here's the second parallel. They bring in false testimony uh, about Stephen. They start lying about what Stephen had said as well. Now, let's, let's just stop for a second and, and, and back up and keep in mind that this council, the Sanhedrin, um, had been dealing with Christians a lot uh, recently at this point. Uh, the, the apostles Peter and John were brought before them back in, uh, in chapter 4 of Acts, and the council had instructed them, be quiet, just quit talking about Jesus, and, and, and everything's cool. You stop talking about Jesus, and everything's good between us. Uh, they weren't supposed to say another word about Jesus, but rather than quieting them down, rather than silencing them, this instruction uh, ultimately resulted in Peter and John preaching the gospel with an increased sense of boldness. And then in Acts chapter 5, we see that the apostles get taken before the council yet again, a second time. And the council stepped up their hostility toward Christianity this time, flogging the apostles, beating them. Uh, and, and I want to draw your attention real quick before we continue uh, to, the, to the reaction that the apostles had uh, to the pain, to, to, to the flogging that they had to endure. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, we read this. This is their reaction. After they've been flogged, so they went away from the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. For whose name? For the name of Jesus. They're rejoicing that they would be deemed worthy by this evil group of people to suffer for the name of Jesus. When was the last time you decided that rather than 
moaning and, and, and grumbling about your, your affliction or your difficult circumstances, you decided to rejoice. You decided to, to say, okay, if God has put me here and He deems me worthy, then, then, then praise the Lord. Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that He's all-powerful? Do you believe that He can heal us and free us from affliction? I do. I think He has the power to. But if you do, you have to see why the apostles, who I'm sure believe these things about God, His sovereignty, His, his powerfulness, His ability to heal, uh, you, you understand why they were rejoicing over their affliction. See, they understood that a closer a person was drawn to Jesus. The closer a person was to Jesus, the more Christ-like a person was, the more righteous their behavior was. And the more righteous a person's behavior is, the greater their persecution, trials, and afflictions will be. You know, I remember watching Maddie when she was taking Taekwondo a few years ago, and when she was first starting out, you know, the teacher was, was really easy on the kids, and it was just a lot of fun. It was like PE or something, you know. They'd just go in and run around and do a bunch of stuff, and it was fun. Uh, the teacher really, really took it easy on them, but as she progressed from yellow belt to, uh, or white belt to yellow belt to, what was next, green belt? Green belt, okay. She started noticing that the class was becoming increasingly uh, more difficult. It, it was becoming harder. It was more structured. And that's because the teacher was well aware of the fact that you can't expect the same type of, of discipline and, and precision from a beginner as you can from somebody who has stuck with the discipline, who's more advanced in the discipline uh, than, the, than the beginner. And so the apostles realized that the same principle applies to afflictions and trials. The greater a person's commitment to living a righteous life for Jesus, the more responsibilities God will entrust to them. And thus, the greater their trials and afflictions would be. He'd let them go through it because he knew that they could endure it by leaning on him. But he knew that they wouldn't try to lean on something else, so that they would lean on him. And so thus, they viewed this flogging as a reason to rejoice because they realized that God saw them as being strong enough and advanced enough in their faith to endure it. I mean, think about it. You know, God, God can use Philip someplace else, and so Philip disappears from this place, and he reappears over here. Did he have the ability to do that there? For, 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 you know, here where the apostles are getting flogged? Of course he did. He could have gotten them out of that situation, but he didn't. He entrusted them with the situation, and so they rejoiced. You see, if you're mocked or you're persecuted for your faith, that's one type of affliction. Uh, it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's because you've done something right. So one of the first principles that we've got to, to learn and, and embrace about suffering and affliction and trials is to see it as a blessing, not a burden. See your afflictions as a blessing, not a burden. Once you see that this was the mindset of the apostles. You'll understand Stephen's response to the false allegations that have been brought up against him. So we continue in verse 15, Acts chapter 6. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. You know, this, this verse kind of drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's so ambiguous. What, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to have the face of an angel? What does an angel look like? Uh, you know, did his accusers realize that he looked like an angel, or did they think he just looked like you know a happy guy? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in a moment. Um, 
But yeah, the apologist in me, the, the one who, who asks all the questions and thinks critically, uh, is dying to know the answers to these questions. Uh, but that's not the point of this verse. That's not the point of the description that we get here. Luke doesn't tell us that Stephen had the face of an angel so that we'd know what the face of an angel would look like. The point is that in the midst of this trial, in the midst of the refiner's fire, Stephen's reaction isn't to get mad. I get mad when people lie about me. But Stephen's reaction isn't to get mad. It's not to get frustrated. It's not to get upset. The implication here is certainly that he reacted in a way that is totally contrary to the flesh. Because the flesh gets mad. The flesh gets upset. And that's our battle. That's our, that's our struggle, is, is, is to, to, to work with the Spirit and not the flesh. The flesh hates being disrespected. The flesh wants to react in anger when we're you know, falsely accused or when we feel slighted. But Stephen, man, he, he realizes that the Christian's afflictions are a blessing and not a burden. And given the truth of this principle, why would Stephen react any differently? Man, and this is something that we all have to learn over and over and over again because the flesh will stir up and, and, and drive us to do all those things that we shouldn't do, get angry, you know, and, and things like that. No, that Stephen's reaction is in accordance with the Spirit. Have you ever been so frustrated with a given circumstance that others were bringing against you or that you were in just for whatever reason, that you just wanted to lose your temper? You, were, you just got frustrated and, you know, you're, you're getting impatient? I mean, has anybody not been there? That's a, that's a better question. We've all been there, right? We've all been in some type of situation like that. We want to speak out against unfair treatment. We want, to, we want to lash out at injustice. We get angry when somebody challenges us, especially when uh, we're, we're falsely challenged. We want to make sure that others don't disrespect us or, or you know, look down their noses at us. But Stephen gives us this excellent example for us to strive for. He doesn't just maintain his cool, maintain his his composure. He goes even a a, a step further than that. He doesn't just stay in neutral. He goes the opposite direction. Instead of just staying cool and composed, rather than getting mad, he goes to joyful. He's got this face of an angel. Um, The opposite direction from where the flesh would take him. John MacArthur says this, quote, His facial expression must have been one of the most incomprehensible incomprehensible yet wonderful rebukes ever set forth against such vicious, lying, ungodly intimidation and persecution, end quote. You see, the the natural human reaction here would be uh, anger, maybe fear, because, you know, you're outnumbered. But because he was filled with faith, he's filled with grace. And because he's filled with grace, he doesn't respond to his circumstances in accordance with the flesh. What a wonderful lesson for all of us to, to learn over and over. Uh, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. He says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When was the last time you were reviled for the name of Christ? We have to see our afflictions, our persecution, and our, and our pain as, as a blessing rather than a burden. And, and that attitude reflects this, this strong, silent confidence that God is in control. The glory of God is resting on Stephen, and thus his face was, was radiant. 
His face was radiant. And this made an even harsher unspoken rebuke because the only other man in, in, in all of Scripture, aside from, from Jesus, who reflected uh, this radiance from the glory of God uh, in this way was Moses. You know, Moses comes down from the mountain and they're like, dude, put, put, put a veil over your face. They couldn't even look at him because his face is so radiant. The same Moses, by the way, that the Sanhedrin idolized, the same Moses against whom they have falsely accused Stephen of blaspheming. And as God causes Stephen's face to radiate the glory of God like an angel, God was essentially telling the council, the Sanhedrin, that Stephen is on par with Moses. If you listen to Moses, you should be listening to this guy too. Chapter 7 Moving on here, chapter 7 is, is a record, a long record of, uh, of Stephen's defense. He basically gives a sermon in his defense. Uh, man, i got to learn to do that. Uh, <laughs> to summarize his sermon, just so we're not going, uh, you know, taking too long here, because we could do this all day. Um, first of all, Stephen recalls the history of Israel and how they, they always, throughout history, had, had rejected and persecuted the godly prophets who sought to call the people back to repentance back to faithfulness to God. He then refutes their idea that God dwells in a temple built by human hands. Um, he, he accuses the council of resisting the Holy Spirit, of always resisting the Holy Spirit, just as their forefathers had done throughout Israel's history. And finally, he accuses them of acting just as their forefathers had done by killing the righteous one, killing Jesus, whom uh, the, the, the prophets had prophesied about. Now, look at how the, the council reacts to that final uh, accusation. The accusation that they, they've always killed the people who told of the one who's to come. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Hmm. You know, if we thought things were bad before for Stephen, they've gotten worse. They're, they're really bad now. The idea of, of gnashing teeth uh, is very telling because there's only one other place in Scripture, there's only one other person who talks about gnashing teeth, and that's Jesus uh, when Jesus was describing hell. He described hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the only place in the entire New Testament where we see that actually playing out uh, in, in, in real day time. Uh, the idea here is that Stephen's accusers are absolutely tormented by the truth of these accusations, probably especially the last one, because the correct response, when they're confronted with all these truths, the correct response would have been repentance. The correct response would have been to say, man, he's right. He was right. You can read the Old Testament and see that's exactly what they've done. He was right. And so the, the correct response would have been repentance, but the idea that they are just like their forefathers who killed anyone who tried to call the, the, the people back to faithfulness in God or faithfulness to God, that accusation is enough to enrage them to the point that they're ready to kill somebody who is calling them back to faithfulness to God. They're going to do the very thing that they're so upset about being accused of. That's how senseless and illogical the flesh is. Now, how, how would Stephen react to this? I mean, there's no doubt 
that as he's made these accusations, these guys are, are probably sweating a little bit. You know, some of the guys are probably starting to pace. Their eyes are probably you know, on fire. You know, I'm sure that he could see the anger in their eyes. I'm sure that he could see the murder in their eyes. He could hear their voices as they started to get louder and louder, roaring against him. Stephen had to know instantly that he was in for a world of pain. He was in for some serious uh, affliction. How, how is a person supposed to respond to such an imminent threat? Once again, Stephen gives us just a, a wonderful example to follow in Acts chapter 7, verses uh, 55 and 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Notice he doesn't see it on himself. He, I don't think he necessarily even knows that it's on himself. He looks into heaven and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What an amazing reaction. What, what, a, what a counterintuitive reaction. But the principle here is really pretty, pretty straightforward. Set your stare on your Savior, not on your situation. Look to your Savior, not your situation. Rather than being filled with fear or, or anger, he's described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, contrary to the flesh. What, what great advice to keep his eyes and be on Jesus and be full of the Holy Spirit. The question we might have is, how, how do we do that? How do we do what, what Stephen's doing here? Well, there, there are a couple clues. The, the word that gets translated as, as full uh, or, or being full gives us a good, uh, a good clue, a good hint. If we were to translate that word literally from the Greek, it would say that he was continuously being filled with or continuously full of the Holy Spirit. It's the same description, by the way, that we saw back at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, before any of this trouble began. Before any of this trouble began, he, he's described the same way. That's a good clue. So one of the things that we see here is that it's, to say the least, it's unwise to wait until we're in the midst of a storm to practice what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about this for a second. How ridiculous would it be for, for a swimmer, for example, to, uh, to, to only practice swimming when they're in the midst of a competition, uh, but no other time? No other, you know, they don't even touch the water any other time. In fact, they drink Coke because uh, they don't like water. Uh, you know, can you imagine a baseball player who, who only practices his swing uh, you know, in the, in the middle of a game, he calls that batting practice. I mean, not only is that an insult to the pitcher, uh, but it, it would also show that he's not very wise because he could probably be a lot better if he would always practice, even off, uh, off the game. Uh, what about a runner who prepares for a race by, by sitting around and eating jelly donuts all week uh, because he's determined, I'm only going to run when I'm, when I'm in a race. Neil, would you do that? <laughs> Neil just ran the Boston Marathon a few months ago. Uh, yeah, you, when you're preparing for a race, you work up and you practice so that you know that when you're in that situation, you're ready. You're ready. It, and everything flows naturally. You don't have to do a whole lot of thinking or, or, or adjusting because you've already been there and done that. You're ready for it. Uh, about, a month, uh, about a month ago, I was watching 
an MMA match, mixed martial arts match on, on television, and uh, it was between a champion, a guy who was the champion, and uh, an undefeated challenger. And the champion was known and, and, and well known as, uh, as a top class Greco-Roman wrestler, but the challenger uh, was, was not. He, he was not a, a grappler, a wrestler, uh, but he was so confident, the challenger was so confident in his own skills that he refused to bring a wrestler into training camp to train against because uh, he didn't think he would need it. The result was that the champion used his wrestling to take this challenger down time after time after time. And out of a 25-minute long match, uh, the guy was probably looking up at the lights, you know, pinned on his back for 23 minutes. I mean, it wasn't even close. Why? Because he didn't prepare for the challenge that he was about to face. You see, what happens when, when you train to face a certain situation is when that situation comes, you respond in accordance with what you have been training to do. Uh, otherwise, you face defeat and despair. And so Stephen is being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's made a practice of it. The same way that he's described at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, before this affliction begins, is the same way that he's described in the middle of his afflictions. He's not waiting until he's in the midst of the storm to build his shelter. He naturally sets his gaze, sets his stare on his Savior, on Jesus, because that's where his focus always is. That's where it just naturally goes for him, because that's what he has always done, whether he's in the midst of a trial or not. And so the truth is that you can set your eyes on God or you can set your eyes on sin. But the truth is, you cannot do both simultaneously. You cannot do both simultaneously. The moment that you set your gaze on one, you will lose sight of the other. You cannot hold God and sin in your gaze at the same time. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews was trying to say when he wrote this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the glory set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you know that Jesus was joyful. He was experiencing joy while he was enduring the cross. How did he do that? By fixing his attention on God, on heavenly things, rather than on his situation. Focusing our gaze constantly on the Lord is the key to being filled constantly continuously filled with the Spirit, as Paul instructed in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And again, the literal translation there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, therefore be filled with the Spirit, uh, the, the literal translation would be to be constantly, continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. And these days, we, we all probably know, there, there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of false teaching about, uh, you know, around the world, by the way, about what it means exactly to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or what happens when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But you see, when we're, the, the basic principle is this, we're controlled by whatever fills our minds. You know, whatever your, your mind is on is what you're filled with, and our minds are filled with whatever we choose to fix our gaze on. In other words, they're filled with what we fix our spiritual eyes on. How, how, do we, how do we determine that? 
How do, how, do we, how do we keep our gaze on Jesus? I think Paul gives us a pretty good uh, indication in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He writes here, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. And Stephen has made this habit of setting his mind on things above, not, our, not his circumstances, but on his Savior. And so thus, when he's faced with affliction, he doesn't flinch. He doesn't need to change his gaze. He doesn't need to, to go from this way to this way. It's already set the way it needs to be. His eyes and his mind were already naturally set firmly on the Lord because that's what he made a habit of. That's what he made a habit of doing. So he doesn't need to change anything in the midst of this trial. And so while the, the, the second key that Stephen reveals about dealing with afflictions is to set your stare on the Savior and not your situation, the real key to doing this is constantly thinking about heavenly things, constantly keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus. And what an amazing reward Stephen received, even in that very moment while he's being killed, while he's being martyred. He's allowed to get a glimpse into heaven where he physically saw God's glory and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus said something that we would do well to remember here. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's from John chapter 8, verse 51. And that's a promise that I actually interpret quite literally. I believe that uh, a lot of the times what happens in the moment before, you know, when a person's conscious as they, as they, as they die, uh, they'll get a glimpse into eternity. They'll, their eyes will sometimes behold uh, the glory of God as he lifts their gaze and gives them uh, momentary, just a momentary uh, glimpse at what is to come. And my tablet is totally taking me someplace else. We don't like that. Um, but that, I, I believe that that's what happens a lot of the times when, when, when believers pass away. They don't actually see death. They see the glory of God in that moment. And so what amazing peace Stephen must have experienced in that moment. So how does the council react to Stephen announcing this, uh, this revelation? He, he announces exactly what he sees. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And how does the council respond? Verses 57 and 58. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Paul. Now, just so we, we, we get an idea of what's going on here, Stephen is running. He starts in front of the council, and they chase him out, outside of the city, and that's where uh, he gets stoned. But do, the, the point here... Is, do you see this, this contrast? There's a, there's a real contrast going on between the council who is acting uh, impulsively from, uh, from the flesh and Stephen who is acting impulsively from the Holy Spirit. And the robes of the men who murder or martyr Stephen are thrown at the feet of a man named Saul. And of course, we know that Saul goes on to become Paul uh, and would write more than half of the New Testament. But you know, whenever I, I see Saul in Acts, uh, especially this story, it's, it's just a great reminder that nobody is impossible for God to reach and change inside and out. Because if anybody ever seemed like that type of person, it was Saul. Man, he was hard-hearted. Man, he hated those Christians. 
but God got to him anyway. Now, we might be tempted to think, you know, what a, what a tragedy that, that Stephen would die. He, he's so, I mean, we, we know so little about him, and he, so he's probably young he, to die so young. How tragic. Uh, imagine what kind of an impact he could have had on the church if only he had lived. But remember, God has our days numbered. God knows when we're coming home. Nobody can send us home until he calls us home. God is in control of this situation as surely as he's in control of any situation. And he's filling Stephen with the Holy Spirit. He, he could have given him, uh, you know, because Stephen's filled with the Holy Spirit, he could have given him, uh, you know, the strength of Samson to, to, to fight these guys off. Uh, he could, just like he did with Philip, he could have taken him here and, you know, put him over here. God could have rescued him. Or he could have done something else. He could have given Stephen unbelievable grace to deal with with the situation. And look at how Stephen responds. We'll end with this. Verses 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. And this should remind us, of course, of how somebody else responded when they were being killed by people who did not understand exactly who they were killing because Jesus prayed essentially the same prayer. Father, forgive them, the people who are killing me, the people who are in rebellion against you. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. What, what true words. When we sin, when we take our spiritual eyes off of the Lord and fix them on something else causing us to sin, I think it can be said, we, we have no idea of what we're doing. We, we, have, we really have no idea of how deeply we're offending God, how deeply we're sinning against Him. But what an abundance of grace to pray for the forgiveness of those who seek to harm Him, who, who seek to put Him through afflictions rather than asking God that He just step in and save the day. He never says, Lord Jesus, help me, get me out of here. He says, forgive them. He says, receive my spirit. And then he says, forgive them. Do you think Stephen learned a thing or two about suffering? Do you think he knew what it meant to feel pain? If you've ever been hit in the leg with a rock, you know it hurts, and he's getting stoned all over. Of course he knows what it means to hurt. Of course he knows what it means to suffer and feel pain. And by doing two things, seeing his affliction as a blessing rather than a burden, and keeping his eyes on his Savior and not his situation. By doing these two things, he was continually filled with the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, which allowed him to set this wonderful example for us to follow because we're all guaranteed to face trials and afflictions as well. But remember that Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am always with you even to the end. There's nothing that can separate us from his love, even in the midst of affliction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that he would teach us to set our minds on you constantly in order that we, too, may be continually filled with him, with his power, with his grace, 
Lord, teach us to despise the things of this world that distract us from you. Lord Jesus, we, we just, those things are, are if, if you just bring them to our minds and our hearts right now, we repent from those things. We forsake our idols and we turn to you. And so we ask that you'd fill us with faith, wisdom, grace, and, and the Holy Spirit in order that we may glorify you and in order, Lord, that we may fix our gaze constantly upon you and be filled constantly with your Holy Spirit. Forgive us for the moments when we look away. Teach us to be like you. Teach us to look to you regardless of the circumstances we're facing. And pray for these things in the powerful name of Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.